fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. In 2018, an impressive third of Americans reported spending two hours or more per day on political activity, but four out of five of those people reported that none of that time was spent on real political work. Rather, we feel engaged and satisfied when we consume political news, engage on social media, and complain with friends and family. In short, what many of us are doing is political hobbyism, not making real change. Our guest today tells the stories of several normal people turned activists and how they became involved in their communities, approaching change on a local level and advocating for political candidates in face-to-face interactions. Thank you so much, Eitan Hirsch, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, the new book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Eitan is a tenured associate professor of political science at Tufts University, known for innovative uses of big data to study timely and important questions about American politics. He researches and teaches about civic participation, U.S. elections, and voting rights. He received a Ph.D. from Harvard University in 2011 and served for six Six years on the faculty of Yale University as assistant professor of political science and resident fellow of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies. His scholarly book, Hacking the Electorate, illuminated the use of campaign micro-targeting in the Obama years. Check out his website, atonhirsch.com. That's spelled E-I-T-A-N-H-E-R-S-H. Let's talk about how you define political hobbyism, what it is or isn't. And did you come up with this idea, Eitan? I did, yeah. A few years ago, you know, I was trying to look at um, this big question of what are people doing when they're doing politics? You know, mostly I do uh, more narrow kind of hypothesis testing with statistics. But I want to try to answer this question, like, what exactly are people doing when they're doing politics? And you know, we're spending all this time on it. And I came to the realization after looking at people's news consumption, people's uh, activism, online engagement, the way they feel about partisanship. And I came to this kind of disturbing conclusion, at least I find it disturbing, which is a lot of people, actually most people, like 90% of people who are engaged in politics are not actually engaged in in real politics. And by that, I mean, you know, real politics is working with other people in a group uh, with strategies and goals to influence the government. Maybe that's um, getting people to vote for a certain candidate or party or move policy, but it's moving something. It's trying to get people, whether they're neighbors or politicians, to take an action that they wouldn't otherwise take. That's what politics is. That is really distant from the uh, from what most of us are doing. Uh, most of us are, are engaging in politics the way a, a foodie might uh, learn about recipes, watch videos, do restaurant reviews, or the way a, a sports fan might follow follow a team or engage in a fantasy league. Why do you think politics has become something of a hobby, and, and why is it so easy for people to just get sucked in? Well, look, I think a lot of people care about it. So it starts with um, an emotional and intellectual desire to be close to power. Uh, We're interested in things, and we know that 
elections have consequences, and so we want to feel connected to it. But there's three real reasons why we do politics this way, and increasingly so. The first has to do with technology, right? It's not just politics. All of our hobbies are now mostly done in, in kind of shallow, short stints, uh, five minutes peppered throughout the day. I, I can't really uh, go out for two hours at night to a meeting or to a club or whatever, but I can spend five minutes in breaks at work and between doing laundry or whatever, uh, following the news. So I think that because leisure has become much more likely to be at home and in these five-minute stints, the idea of going out once a week to a meeting seems like a big lift for people. But there's other reasons, too, that I get into that help explain why we're at a, a particularly high moment of political hobbyism. Who are political hobbyists? Is there an average person who, who falls into that category? Are, are there traits that they all share? Yeah, so they come from all walks of life. I mean, you got to remember that most people who are engaged in politics are engaged only in this kind of politics, that is, in consumption, in dinner table conversations, in online debates. That characterizes most political behavior for most Americans. So they're found in every age group and demographic. But it's a particular... Uh, it's particularly prevalent um, among a certain demographic, and that is people who are college educated. Um, they know that politics is important. It's part of their social scene to talk about it. Um, and people who are uh, white and male tend to do this behavior more. So right now, if you look across, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, you'll see that activist groups, people who are actually trying to move politics in a direction they care about, are overwhelmingly populated by women. But people who uh, know the most facts about politics and who spend the most time in political consumption are overwhelmingly men. Um, and so there's an explanation that's tied to that which is basically college-educated white men in particular um, have a pretty good status quo. They might say they don't like the president or they don't like the past president or uh, they might lament polarization, but they don't have enough motivation to get off the couch. Um, and other demographic groups, you know, minorities, for example, racial minorities, have less time they're spending on politics, but much more of that time is spent in active participation. And I think the best explanation of that is that there's more concrete needs that they seek out of political power. Tell us about the political meeting that you attended in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and, and the man who actually attended that group who was not one of their regulars and, and why that was significant that night. Yeah, so one of these groups that I follow in the book, there's seven stories altogether, but one of them is in this very conservative area of rural Pennsylvania. And I went down there to visit them, and, and I was spending some time with their leaders, and I went to their monthly meeting. So there's about 50 people who are liberals, and they're in this very conservative uh, area. And I have to say that, you know, it's... it's um, it's striking to, you know, a lot of, I live in Boston where most people are Democrats. And so, you know, if you were to canvas or something like that for a candidate, you wouldn't find it particularly scary. You would find it like, you know, maybe a lot of people are uncomfortable doing that. But in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, I mean, some of these people who came to canvas come in, in Kevlar vests. They really are mm. nervous about the kind of conversations they're going to have when they're trying to persuade people to, to vote Democratic down there. 
And so I'm at this meeting and I sit at a table um, and there's one person who looks really different at the table. He's, he's really kind of quiet and he, it turns out he's, um, he identifies himself as a Republican and, a, and a, an evangelical Christian, a pro-life, which is a very unusual at uh, a meeting of a liberal organization. But what he went on to say was that um, he was unhappy with the direction that the country has been taking under President Trump. He felt particularly um, affected by uh, a, a, a racism that he feels is really inconsistent with his Christian values. And, and so he wanted to check out this organization. And the reason this was so important and meaningful is that um, this organization, which is called Voice of Westmoreland, did a lot of work to make it welcoming to someone like him. Um, some of the, the groups that are, I think are doing really well at building political power um, need to understand their own communities. And in rural Pennsylvania, understanding that community means understanding the diversity of people who live there and meeting people where they are and being empathetic to where they're coming from. And so because this group was so welcoming and its leaders um, so empathetic, this this guy felt comfortable being there. And since then, he's become actually very active. He, he's gone around canvassing for local Democratic uh, 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 candidates. And, you know, this is someone who's never voted Democratic before. And, you know, he's a, for the Democrats who are working on these cases, he's such a good advocate because he understands his own community and his own path to, uh, to a political change um, is meaningful to people. And so, you know, this is the kind of group and the kind of person that is actually serious about building power. And that's, that's why I highlight them. Why do you think political hobbyism is a problem for Democrats today specifically and, and not really so much for Republicans, Aton? There's a few reasons. First of all, if you look at just who's spending the most amount of time on consumption, it's college-educated white people. And those people at this moment in time are majority Democrats. But there are other reasons, too. Um, you know, the thing that I'm, I'm basically advocating in this book, which is focus on local grassroots organizing, is actually a message that's, uh, I, I think, uh, more consistent with what Republicans are, are up to. You know, a lot of Republicans are in regular church attendance. Sometimes they get brought into issues uh, through their church communities. The best examples of grassroots organizing in recent years have been on the right. If you think about the right to life movement, the gun rights movement, and um, and 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 of course the Republican Party in general is uh, more committed to you know decentralized local government. And so, I think that Republicans um, understand the message of grassroots organizing really well. Democrats. Um, particularly this class of Democrats, the kind of college-educated Democrats, are not necessarily as practiced at being connected to their community and understanding the path that goes from local to national. So, you know, Republicans, a lot of people know this, have been really good at saying, like, okay, let's invest in this 25-year-old to be a, a local judge now so that in 30 years he can be eligible for the Supreme Court. A lot of people look at the idea of a, a local judge election or something like county commissioner and say, ah, that's not important. You know, all the important stuff's happening in Washington. And so if you're not willing to have a long view and to understand how uh, kind of bottom-up grassroots politics work, you're, you're really going to lose. 
Well, why do you think political hobbyism as a whole is a problem, and as you write in the book, is an actual serious threat to democracy? Yeah, so it's a problem for a few reasons. I mean, one reason is it's just an incredible waste of time. I mean, not, not everyone has an hour or two to spend on politics a day. But right now, those who do have that hour or two are spending it all on themselves, all on learning facts about, you know, the daily scandals in Washington. So they're just being ineffective in their use of time. And, you know, if you think that the status quo in the country is not great, it's unfortunate that so many people are spending their time that way. But it's worse than that. Um, one of the main reasons political hobbyism is a problem is it because it, it actually incentivizes politicians to behave really badly. Um, what, if what we're as citizens trying to get out of politics is some kind of instant gratification, emotion, then politicians play to that. And I think anyone who's ever seen a, a, pr- a primary debate or a congressional hearing knows this. They know that the politicians on the other side of that screen are trying to essentially make a viral video of themselves. They're trying to say some kind of zinger that's going to get a lot of low-dollar donations or get attention. And by turning politics into a sport, we, regular people, are incentivizing them to behave that way, sometimes against their own strategic interests, because they're trying to do what's short-term going to make people uh, react. And um, a lot of times what, what the views that, you know, they would be better off and their, their party, their side would be better off if they, if they took a longer view. Tell us about the amateur Democrats of the 1950s and how they are similar or, or different from political hobbyists of today and, and what we can learn from their experience. Yeah, so I draw this connection to these this group of people that's been pretty well studied by political scientists called amateur Democrats, or they've also been called club Democrats. So this was a movement, uh, a post-war movement, like in the 1950s, of the same kind of demographic. So, you know, professionals, middle class, college educated, white professionals in, you know, in, in or around big cities. And they... Um, what were they known for was that they, they had a, a liberal agenda. And at the time, remember, the Democratic Party wasn't so liberal, um, but they were the, the liberal wing of the of Democratic Party. And they also were um, they didn't like the Democratic Party machines. So they were against machine politics. Uh, and what they did was they met weekly or monthly in clubhouses or in living rooms, and they talked about big issues. They talked about the big issues of the day. They talked about civil rights. They talked about, um, you know, uh, they railed against the machines and focused on reform. Uh, but the criticism of them has always been that they were they were kind of all talk. I mean, they liked talking about big ideas. Meanwhile, you know, the party machines, what they were up to was organizing city blocks and, and neighborhoods and providing for people, uh, handing out turkeys and providing vaccine shots and getting people what they needed and building rapport. And um, to the amateurs, that stuff was like, you know, beneath them. That's parochial. Um I think that's that's a, a common thing with a hobbyist, too. I mean, they like talking and arguing about big ideas, but if you ask them to organize a block for voters, they'd say, oh, I don't have time for that. That's kind of beneath me. The local stuff I don't really want to do. The helping neighbors in order to achieve political goals, I'm not sure I want to do, but I really want to debate the big, important ideas. Um, the hobbyists have something uh, negative to them that the amateurs didn't have, which is the amateurs in the 50s, they were actually in 
local community organizations. So they did meet regularly in their neighborhoods and they thought some about how to get elected or how to help candidates get elected. The hobbyists of today have kind of the negative aspects of the amateurs, a, a lot of emotion, a lot of focus on national stuff, but they don't have any of the positive attributes, which is, you know, local leadership. Tell us about Lisa Mann and what you learned from her experience, Aton. Sure. So Lisa is one of the seven organizers I study in the book. And Lisa was such an interesting person to talk to because she is, uh, she's about 50 years old. She, um, she lives in Brooklyn, in a well-to-do area of Brooklyn, New York. And she's very quiet. She's, she's reserved. And the reason that's interesting is because she does one of the bravest forms of politics I know of which is this. She goes over to Staten Island with this group and she practices a, 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 an idea called deep canvassing, which is this. Lisa, who is a Democrat, goes to houses of people who she expects to be Republicans to be Trump voters. Yeah, Staten Island is the, is the more conservative area of New York. And so she goes there and knocks on their doors and tries to engage them in a long conversation, like 20-minute conversation, where she opens up to them really opens up about um, a story where, where, where she, she tells about herself uh, in some vulnerable way and um, talks to that person about why she feels you know, connected to some political goal. And she invites the other person to do it. Mostly this conversation that Lisa engages in is a listening conversation where she tries to get the other person to say, hey, where do you come from on this policy issue? Or you know, where does your support for this or that party come from? The reason that Lisa does this is because there's some good evidence that, you know, the way to do canvassing is not knocking on doors with a five minute or five second script uh, where it's very uncomfortable and everyone just, you know, just hates it. But it's to try to make a personal connection with someone. There's a lot of people that Lisa meets at the door who um, feels like uh, no one listens to them and no one cares about what they think and no one understands where they're coming from. And Lisa, who's very patient and very kind, goes there with an, an open heart and a listening ear and she um, moves people uh, toward what she believes. Aton, talk about your experience. You've dipped your toes into some local politics. I did my toes in little politics. I would say this, you know, as a political science professor, I really wasn't sure I wanted to write about my own political experience in a book. But I wanted to in the end because um, this book is trying to tell a political hobbyist there's another way. There's something else they should be doing. And a lot of people react to that by saying, uh, what excuse do I have for not doing it? How can I find a way to justify the two hours I spend watching, you know, congressional hearings or whatever, so that I don't have to really get off my couch? And in telling my own story, I, I want to say, yeah, I know those excuses. <laughs> I have those too. I'm busy, like you. Uh, you know, for me, I'm not particularly ideological. I'm kind of moderate in my own political views. And um, I also have similar excuses to a lot of people in that, like, I, I don't, you know, love going to meetings or, or uh, you know, I don't see myself as a, necessarily someone who's good at being, I can't imagine, you know, I don't identify as a political organizer. And so I have all these excuses. And so that's why I wanted to talk about my own story, because I have them and I know them. But let me tell you how I tried to overcome them. And I talked about in the book how I started interacting with 
local political party committees, and eventually forming my own precinct committee that is trying to replicate some of the the best strategies that I learned from the, the seven organizers I talk about in the book. Eitan Hirsch is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Politics is for Power is the new book, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Check out his website, EitanHirsch.com. That's E-I-T-A-N-H-E-R-S-H. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me.